episode of Evidence-Based Radio coming at you, unfortunately, still from quarantine. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Before we get started tonight, I want to have a brief moment of celebration for the turning of the earth upon its axis. The fall season is upon us, and as we all know, the reason for the season is axial tilt. Uh, And so it is my absolute favorite time of the year. I am a sucker for pumpkin-flavored ice cream. My only pumpkin-related failing. Don't try and give me a pumpkin-spiced latte or anything like that. Just pumpkin-spiced ice cream. Um, I had some the other day, and I was like, oh, yes, this is definitely still amazing. (laughs) But I also love fall foliage, the crisp feel of dry and cool but not cold air. It's really, there's nothing better from my perspective. Of course, it's a little gloomy out right now uh, as I'm recording this, but in the end, fall is still mostly the best with a lot of great weather and beautiful scenery to behold. Therefore, it's a great time to get out and do safer outdoor activities like walking or hiking or whatever it is that you like to do out of doors in the fall. Now, remember, I say safer because unfortunately, nothing is 100% safe. Uh, both from possible infection with COVID and also just the usual wear and tear of being outdoors and doing activities. I can't tell you how many times I've turned an ankle or uh, done other things. So, you know, obviously you can't guarantee full safety, but you also can't live your life wrapped in bubble wrap. So, uh, to that end, we need to remember our masks and social distancing and maybe walking sticks, but outdoor activities are definitely safer than indoor ones if you're hoping to do it with someone outside your personal bubble. Now, unfortunately, there has been a rise in COVID-19 infections in the last few weeks. Uh, We just heard uh, as of the last day that the president and first lady have tested positive. Uh, Frankly, I'm amazed it took this long, given the uh, really ridiculous amount of flaunting of basic hygiene ideas that they have been engaging in. But uh, there has actually also been a rise in the state. So Massachusetts has seen a rise in the last few weeks. So uh, we we do still have to be vigilant here in the state and all over the country. I know I just read a snippet about New York uh, worrying about a second wave. And so uh, as people do tend to be more indoors, both because the weather is getting colder and from frankly, what I would consider to be uh, quarantine fatigue. 
uh, after a while, you become less vigilant. Even if you are being vigilant initially, a lot of people just after a while, it seems kind of silly to keep doing this when nothing's happened. But the reason that nothing has happened is because you've been doing it. Um, and so unfortunately, there has been an uptick. And to that end, don't forget to get your normal everyday flu shot if you can. Uh, again, as always, you're not just protecting yourself, but also others. Uh, unfortunately, especially in America, the anti-vaccine crowd has been waging a war against science, medicine, and honestly, just basic knowledge for so long now that many otherwise sensible people fear this simple life-saving measure and will probably not get it for themselves or their children. Um, and so I just, I just don't know what to do about that. Uh, I'm a little bit worried about what will happen once we finally have a vaccine for COVID-19, but we don't have to cross that bridge yet. So I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to tell you to make sure you go out and get your flu shot because that will, again, help you to stay healthy because you don't want to have the regular flu and COVID-19 at the same time or to be just recovering from the flu and get COVID-19 because that will increase the probability that you will have an adverse reaction um, that could be a serious reaction. And so it's just absolutely... Uh, worth your while to make sure you get the uh, flu shot. And especially since it's generally pretty easy to get, uh, you can go to your local pharmacy, you can go to your doctor. Um, it's, it's very widely available. Okay, so uh, let's talk about COVID for one more minute, uh, just because there has been a recent study that uh, kind of hit the headlines that I want to do a little bit of reassurance debunking on that uh, set of headlines. And so recently there was a headline that said that the COVID-19 virus had mutated and become more contagious. Now I'm here to assure you that this is a, that it has not become more contagious, uh, at least in the fact that we don't have any direct evidence for that. And so a mutation did occur with the new strain featuring a mutation in the spike protein of the virus. The protein, a spike protein is the protein that allows the virus to slip into our cells. And so this mutated version is called G, sorry, D614G. And so over time in the US, D614G has become the prevalent strain of COVID-19. And so in a test of two waves in Houston, Texas, researchers found that the second wave was almost 99% D614G. The patients also averaged more viruses in their system, which could mean that the strain is better at infecting and replicating inside our cells, which could then potentially make it easier to spread. But it's important to note that there is absolutely no direct evidence that this strain is more infectious than the original Chinese strain. It's actually a strain that came from Europe and may simply have lucked out in being the dominant strain based on circumstance and where the people who infected people in America came from primarily. Uh, 
And so it turns out that in the first wave in Houston, 82% of the cases were also D614G. So it was already quite prevalent in Houston. It just became more prevalent by that second wave. And so more research would absolutely be needed before any conclusions could be made about it being a better spreader, uh, more easily contagious. Those studies should be done, but for now, this is more of the same. It's more common, but that doesn't tell us much about whether it actually does anything, said Angela Rasmussen, a virologist from Columbia University who was not affiliated with the research. And a big takeaway is that no one, not even the authors of the study, believe that the mutation made the virus deadlier or more likely to sicken people. We found little evidence of a significant relationship between virus genotype and altered virulence, the authors of the new study wrote. It makes sense that it's the most frequent variant observed now, as it was already the dominant circulating variant in May, Rasmussen noted. And so, again, it was already on the rise. It makes total sense that more people have it now because more people had it before. And so viruses mutate all of the time, and those mutations are often completely neutral or don't change the way that the viruses affect their host. And so it is very clear that even if this did make it easier to become the dominant strain, it didn't do that by increasing the, vir the virility in any way. So again, you're not more likely to get uh, adverse effects. You're not more likely to die with this particular strain. It's just that it happens to have become more dominant in the U.S. And so your best bet is still wearing a mask, socially distancing, and washing your hands. No matter what strain it is, that is the advice to keep you from uh, not getting it. And so definitely just keep doing that. Um, I had a test just yesterday and I was all cleared. Uh, I got the results this morning. And so, because uh, I'm going to be seeing people next week, uh, my office is going to be having an actual outdoor get together. And so I wanted to be sure that I was safe and I wasn't going to uh, make anyone sick. Not that I've seen anyone else um, except for my husband and uh, my uh, boyfriend out, out of doors wearing masks standing apart from each other, uh, for the most part. So, um, yeah. Okay. Let's move on now to talk about a different disease with a new hope for sufferers. And in fact, there are actually two, uh, new hopes. And so a class of compounds called bicyclic azetidines used for treating malaria have been shown to be an effective treatment for the intestinal parasite cryptosporidium, spiridium, excuse me, which is the leading cause of diarrheal disease and death in children, which until now has evaded any kind of true cure. Currently, there is one treatment for the disease, but it does not work well in patients who are immunocompromised or malnourished. And of course, those are the very populations most affected by the parasite. So you can see it doesn't work very well. 
The findings are from a multi-institutional collaboration and published in the journal Science Translational Medicine. There's an urgent need because young children are dying of this diarrheal pathogen, and there's no effective medicine to treat the infection nor vaccine to prevent the disease, said the study's lead author, Sumiti Vinayak, a pathobiology professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Immunocompromised patients and agricultural animals, especially young calves, are also very susceptible to cryptosporidium. This is the first time we have had validation of a compound working on a specific target in this parasite. And so the researchers performed a search of existing drugs, hoping to find one with the potential to be tested against cryptosporidium. They looked at many classes of antimicrobial compounds and determined that the bicyclic azetidines were a potential candidate for testing. And so they first tested the compound against cryptosporidium, which is a protozoan parasite, in cell cultures and found that it worked very well against them. It killed them very quickly. They then tested oral treatment in mice and found that the compound was able to cure them after a four-day cycle. And so the researchers found that the compound targets an enzyme responsible for protein production in the parasite. This study provides a new way of targeting cryptosporidium. Significantly, because we are repurposing compounds from an anti-malarial program in development, it allows us to apply insights from that program to the treatment of cryptosporidiosis, said Iman Comer, who led the study at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and the Broad Institute is actually uh, was actually the um, place where my uh, COVID-19 test was done, so that's funny. Uh, professors Boris Streitman of the University of Pennsylvania and Christopher D. Huston of the University of Vermont also co-led the study. So again, this is a big study, lots of people involved. They found that the bicyclic azetidines target an enzyme that makes transfer RNA, which is the molecule that carries amino acids as the cell makes proteins from those building blocks. So you make proteins from amino acids. You put them together in certain ways and you get a protein. They targeted The targeted enzyme is similar to that in the parasite that causes malaria. So they're actually part of a specific um, group of uh, different parasites both um, P. falsarium uh, and cryptosporidium. But the good thing is, is that it is not similar to the enzyme in human cells, which means it's a good candidate for a drug treatment. Now they confirmed their findings by using CRISPR-Cas9, the gene editing tool, to edit the uh, DNA of the cryptosporidium gene for that target enzyme. So they, cho- they changed just one nucleotide, but that was enough so that the drug would no longer attack it. And so when they then tried to use the drug, it, it made the paras- having made that change made the parasite resistant. And so this adds weight to the mechanism of action that that particular gene is what the compound is attacking. 
This is the first time that the mechanism of action of an anti-cryptosporidium drug candidate has been confirmed, Vignac said. It's a good stepping stone to find these compounds that we can feed into the drug development pipeline. Future research will further evaluate safety and clinical effectiveness, but the discovery of a new and potent series of compounds with a known target puts us on a promising path towards pr- promising path forward in this important effort to develop urgently needed treatments. Okay, now, as I always remind people when I report on drug development at such early stages, it may be that this doesn't end up becoming a drug for humans to treat this disease. It may have some sort of unintended consequence that makes it not usable. It may give us a treatment for calves, but not humans, or humans, but not calves. Though, as these compounds have already been deployed in the fight against malaria, that's a hopeful beginning. They are at least known to researchers already. And so let's hope that this leads to an effective cure for this devastating disease. But as I noted before, even if it doesn't, there is actually another contender for the hopeful end to this plague of uh, basically just a terrible infection that kills thousands and thousands of babies every year because um, babies have a really hard time maintaining their um, levels of hydration if they get a diarrheal disease. And so you just cannot keep them hydrated. And if they uh, cannot be hydrated, they end up dying um, because their bodies just can't handle the electrolyte imbalance and the loss of fluids. Okay, so there is another contender. Earlier this year, researchers found that the compound Tetralon-E, a byproduct of bacteria that helps shipworms, which are actually a group of saltwater clams rather than worms, it helps them digest the cellulose in the wood they eat. So if you've ever seen old wood and it's got tons of little holes in it, that's probably from shipworm. Um, and so those are those clams and they've actually developed uh, the ability to eat uh, wood. But of course, they do it using a symbiotic relationship with bacteria in their gut. And so it's those bacteria that are producing this compound Tetralon E. And so according to a paper in uh, PLOS Pathogens, um, and so PLOS, of course, is Public Library of Science, uh, in case I haven't noted it recently, because I often forget that maybe not everybody remembers what that is. (laughs) Uh, So the Public Library of Science publishes a series of uh, open access um, journals. And so this one is uh, based on pathogens. And so the compound was able to kill not only cryptosporidium, but also the parasites that cause malaria, toxoplasmosis, theriosis, which is apparently a major cause of disease in cattle, and babesiosis, which is actually a lesser known uh, disease that is uh, spread by ticks, and it's actually endemic to the Northeast. uh, And so it basically is a malaria-like disease. And so we know more about Lyme disease because that's kind of the, uh, you know, most notorious disease you can get from ticks. 
But unfortunately, ticks can give you a whole bunch of different diseases, uh, not just Lyme disease. And so um, babesiosis is one of those that it can give you. And they are absolutely in ticks endemic to the Northeast. So that's always why we tell people to be very careful about ticks, because not only can they cause Lyme disease, but a whole host of other um, problems. There are compounds that work against the individual parasites, but to find one that works against this entire group, that is what made this unique, said Roberta O'Connor, an associate professor at Washington State University's Veterinary Microbiology and Pathology Unit and first author on the paper. Now, while there are drugs already to combat many of these diseases, they tend to rapidly develop drug resistance. Development of new effective drugs against Epicomplexin parasites is an ongoing need for human and veterinary medicine, she said. And so O'Connor's study will characterize the specific effects of Tetralon-E on cryptosporidium parasites, while her colleague, Assistant Professor Nicholas Villarino of WSU's Program in Individualized Medicine, will look at the pharmacokinetics pharmacokinetics, there we go, portion to determine the effectiveness and optimal dose regimes in immunocompromised mice. We will define how the drug behaves in the body and how much of the drug is needed to control cryptosporidium infection, Villarino said. We want the maximum effect with the minimal adverse effects. But again, it will take a long time if this works to get to a marketable drug from this research. But even if this doesn't specifically work, O'Connor and Villarino are still hopeful because Tetralon E is obviously hitting some system that is common to all these parasites. O'Connor said, even if this compound isn't successful, if we can determine the mechanism, we will have identified a common drug target for all of these parasites. So that's very exciting. But let us now get away from talking about diseases because we surely don't want to do that uh, for the whole time. Uh, let's talk about something a little more upbeat, though, you know, obviously those are promising developments, but they're not quite yet to the point where I'm going to be popping champagne because, uh, again, we know how hard it is to get a drug from these early development cycles all the way to something that can actually be given to people um, via prescription. And so I don't want to get too excited about that. But I do love the fact that there are two active um, research uh, prongs at the moment. So that's very exciting. But let's again, like I said, move on. About a month ago, I reported on batteries that were being created using orange peels. Well, this week, we're going to talk about batteries using vanillin as the electrolyte. And so researchers at the University of Technology in Graz, Austria, have found a way to convert vanillin, which is an aromatic compound derived from lingon, into a redox active electrolyte material for use in liquid batteries. It is groundbreaking in the field of sustainable energy storage technology, said Stefan Spurk from the Institute of Bi Bioproducts and Paper Technology at the Graz University of Technology. 
The electrolyte of liquid batteries is usually made up of some sort of toxic heavy metal or rare earth element. So replacing them with a substance like vanillin would be extremely ecologically useful. Vanillin is one of the few compounds produced from lignin, which is derived from a byproduct of the pulp and paper industry. The team transformed the vanillin into a redox active material. Uh, this is a material that allows for oxidation reduction reactions, which involve an exchange of electrons between two materials, which is how you get the uh, ability of the battery to work. Uh, and so redox batteries can replace traditional lithium ion batteries because they're more easily scalable, they're less toxic, they're more recyclable, and more fireproof. They also have a longer life expectancy and a low self-discharge, so they're pretty much magical. Um, no, they're just very, very good. Uh, they can be used to store energy from renewables, such as wind and solar power, and can be used as backups for a host of stationary needs, such as power plants, hospitals, e-fueling stations, stuff like that. The process uses green and mild chemistry, and so again, it doesn't need any kind of toxic uh, and expensive metal catalysts, as it would if you were using those heavy metals. It also, uh, the process also works at room temperature, uh, and you could actually do it with common household chemicals. Now, of course, vanillin is very abundant. You can just walk into your local supermarket and buy it off the shelf, um, but obviously, uh, and in fact, if you want, you can even buy it in the supermarket, but we can also use a simple reaction to separate it from lignin, which in turn, it produces in large quantities as waste product in paper production, noted Spurk. And so the test results were published in the journal Applied Chemistry International Edition. The separation and refining processes have now been patented and the researchers want to commercially develop the technology. Spurk explains, the plan is to hook up our plant to a pub pulp mill and isolate the vanillin from the lignin that is left over as waste. Whatever is not needed can subsequently flow back into the regular cycle and be used energetically as usual. We are in concrete talks with Mondi AG, a leading global manufacturer of paper-based products, which is showing great interest in the technology. The final step is the to test the batteries in real life. The company is looking for an energy supply company that is willing to integrate the startup's redox flow technology into its existing infrastructure. The batteries should help relieve burden on the grid, which is why Spark is convinced it will be useful given how easy it is to produce. We can keep the value chain ranging from the procurement of raw materials and compounds to the generation of electricity on a regional basis, enable storage capacities to hold up to hundredths of a, millil of a milliwatt hour, relieve the strain on the electricity grid, and make an important contribution to the green, ener to green energy storage. And so that is very exciting. Uh, newer, greener technologies for batteries are highly needed um, because batteries are wonderful, amazing tools that are often also very bad news. Uh, they're very hard to recycle. They're very, a lot of them are made with really toxic products, either 
toxic in actually their production, toxic in getting them out of the ground, uh, toxic in the potentiality for them when they rupture to poison people. They're just bad all around, uh, even though they're also wonderful. So if we can find ways to create batteries with things like orange peels or vanillin, that is a huge, huge thing uh, that we should all be extremely excited about. Uh, And especially in this case, they're really far advanced and they're working really on the edge of actually starting to deploy them. And so hopefully if we get proof of concept of that in Europe, then it will be moved back to here. Um, Because as we know uh, nowadays, uh, Europe, uh, possibly as well China, though they're Science is a bit fraught sometimes. Uh, Europe is definitely doing a lot more in the realm of uh, physics and engineering uh, science than I think that we're doing here in America these days. Um, We really have, again, not been doing great. Uh, But maybe times will change and people will start believing in science in America again. But I'm not going to hold my breath and I'm just going to hope that people in Europe continue to uh, do great things because otherwise, yeah, let's, uh, let's take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs and then we will come back and we'll talk about whales. So hang out for just a moment. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. 
to provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and as advertised, we are going to move on now to a couple of stories about whales. And so we're going to start tonight talking about Cuvier's beaked whale, which was already known to be one of the deepest and longest diving whales. But now, new research has clocked an individual in at an astonishing three hour and 42 minute long dive. That is a crazy amount of time to be able to hold any animal's breath. The whale can dive, these whales can dive almost two miles below the surface of the ocean. And so they're already completely amazing. And it's crazy to know that they can dive that far down and survive those pressures, but also uh, the fact that they can hold their breath and not need to reoxygenate for that long is very amazing. And in fact, if you did the calculations based on other mammals that dive, they really should only be able to survive without oxygen for around 33 minutes before having to resort to anaerobic respiration. Now, of course, uh, researchers, including Nicola Quick and her colleagues from Duke University, knew that they were definitely able to dive for longer amounts of time. And so in order to find out how often the animals dive deep and how long it takes for them to recover once surfacing, Quick and a team from the Cascadia Research Collective set out to observe the whales in waters off Cape Hatteras. Because the animals spend so little time at the surface, we need calm seas and experienced observers to look for them, says Quick. The average period they spend at the surface is about two minutes, so getting a tag on takes a dedicated crew and a maneuverable vessel. And so that short surface time also makes it hard to collect data because those tags need to uplink to a satellite. But despite all these challenges, they were able to deploy tags on 23 animals over a five-year period, and they were able to document some 3,600 foraging dives with durations ranging from that 33 minutes all the way to two hours and 13 minutes, all of which were times that were thought to be beyond the capacity to use oxygen stored in their lungs. Now, the researchers knew that around 95% of the dives made by other mammals end up before, end before their oxygen supplies end. So when they recheck their data for the Cuviers against that idea, they found that if the same cutoff was used for these beaked whales, it suggests that the animals can remain beneath the water for up to 77.7 minutes before needing to switch to anaerobic respiration. It really did surprise us that these animals are able to go so far beyond what predictions suggest their diving limit should be, says Quick. Now, the next question was how long did it take for the whales to recover from long, deep dives? 
And so that first range was just for the sort of normal dives. But there were two outliers. One was just just under three hours long. And again, that longest was three hours and 42 minutes. And so when they looked at the recovery times, they were actually unable to find a pattern. One animal uh, resumed diving for food within 20 minutes after a two-hour dive, while another who had surfaced after just 78 minutes spent almost four hours staying near the surface. Going into the study, we thought that we would see a pattern of increased recovery time after a long dive. The fact that we didn't opens up many other questions, says Quick. Now, along with colleague Andreas Falman of the Oceanographic Foundation of the Community in Valencia, Spain, Quick posits that the animals may have a very low metabolic rate, along with larger oxygen storage capability and the ability to survive, frankly, the pain of lactic acid buildup when the muscles begin to need to use anaerobic metabolism because the oxygen just is no longer available. And so another question is why those very deep dives took place. It may be that there was a particularly productive food patch, or there was some perceived threat, or some noise disturbance influenced these dives, she said. So we don't quite know everything yet, but we do know that these are really remarkable animals. Um, I can't imagine being able to hold your breath for almost four hours. Um, That's just crazy. Even for a whale, that's crazy. (laughs) And so uh, speaking of whales, a team of Monterey Bay researchers has discovered that blue whales switch from nighttime to daytime singing when they begin their migration. And so the findings are published in the journal Current Biology. Sound is a vital mode of communication in the ocean environment, especially over long distances, said William Oostrich, a graduate student in biology at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station. Light or any sort of visual cue is often not as effective in the ocean as it is on land. So many marine organisms use sound for a variety of purposes, including communicating and targeting food through echolocation. Now, we've been listening to whales for decades. Uh, Everybody knows someone who has a old CD of whale song, Um, but we still don't really know what they're saying to one another. We know that there's definitely communication there. Um, We know that a lot of them use it for communication along very long distances, Um, but it's just not something that we really have gotten our heads around. But by recording both individual whales and the greater population in the Northeast Pacific, researchers from Stanford and the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or MBARI, have identified the trills and bellows of blue whales, which indicate when they are planning to move from their feeding grounds off the west coast of the U.S. to their breeding grounds off the coast of Central America. We decided to compare daytime and nighttime song patterns from month to month, and there, in the divergence and convergence of two lines, was this beautiful signal that neither of us really expected, said John Ryan, a biological oceanographer at Embari and senior author of the paper. As soon as that image popped up on the screen, Will and I were both like, hello, behavior. 
And so further analysis of hydrophone recordings captured during five years of research could help reveal new information about the blue whale migration, which is actually one of the longest in the world at 4,000 miles. Now, again, we still learn, know pretty much nothing about these huge majestic animals, uh, other than they're huge and they're majestic. Um, and so learning to eavesdrops on their decision to migrate could actually help them by, for instance, uh, preventing ship strikes. So if you know that it's uh, blue whale migration time, you can warn shipping lanes to watch out for them. Now, the songs were gathered using a hydrophone or underwater microphone and tags on whales so that they can be easily identified. In 2015, Mbari placed a hydrophone 18 miles off the Monterey coast, 3,000 feet under sea level. The hydrophone is connected to the Mars Undersea Cabled Observatory, which provides power and communication. Once the microphone was turned on and allowed to record, and it was allowed to record for a solid five years. The, fight, the hydrophone fits in your hand, said Ryan. It's a little instrument that produces big data, about two terabytes per month. Ryan also recommends listening to the live feed of the hydrophone now, actually in the fall, uh, but unfortunately you'll only be able to hear humpback whales through your speakers. Blue whale song has to actually be sped up in order for humans to be able to hear it. They found that the blue whales sang throughout the summer, growing louder and singing mostly at night. It reached a crescendo around October and November in the evening. After this, the songs moved to the daytime as they began to move southward to warmer waters. This change in the time of song had been noted before, but hadn't really been connected to the migration because previous research didn't combine the listening with tags that actually tracked the whales. Doing this let the researchers see the full picture. During the summer and early fall, the animals spend the day eating and bulking up for the voyage south. That only leaves nighttime for singing. But as they begin to move towards heading south, they are no longer feeding as much and begin to sing during the day. In the hydrophone data, we saw really strong patterns over this enormous spatial domain. When we saw the exact same pattern on individual animals, we realized that what we'd been measuring over hundreds of kilometers is actually a real behavioral signal, and one that represents the behavior of many different whales, said Oistrich. As an ecologist, it's very exciting to observe so many whales simultaneously using one instrument. Now, this will also potentially let them discover whether or not the whales are changing their behavior in response to climate change. And Ostrich is now looking at another question. Are the whales also using this change in song to talk to each other? Blue whales exist at incredibly low densities with enormous distances between them, but clearly, they are sharing information in some way, he said. Trying to understand that information sharing is one motivation, but also sorry, uh, but also potentially using that signaling as a means to study them is another exciting possibility. Okay, 
So that is very cool. We definitely want to learn more about whales because we want to be able to save them because, you know, saving the whales is important. Um, I know it sounds trite, but it actually really is. Uh, you know, they're apex predators in the oceans and apex predators are very important for keeping ecosystems uh, in balance. And also, frankly, we owe them because uh, the reason a lot of them are almost all of them that are endangered are endangered is because of humans. So we totally owe them. <laughs> um, and so the more we can know about them, the better it is uh, that we'll be able to actually use that information to protect them. Okay, let's move back to the land and talk about a new study published in the Journal of Ecology, which confirms that fairy circles, regularly spaced round voids of bare soil surrounded by grasses, can be described by a model first proposed by Alan Turing in 1952. Now, uh, if you don't know who Alan Turing is, you should read a biography of him because he was a very important uh, researcher and did a lot of great things and was badly, badly misused by his country. Um, and yeah, um, we're not going to, we're not going to do the, a biography of Alan Turing, but you should know who he is because he was a very important person. Um, he was also, uh, happened to be a mathematician and theoretical biologist. Uh, and so he proposed that in certain systems, due to random disturbances and what he called a reaction diffusion mechanism, interactions between just two diffusible substances is enough to lead to strongly patterned structures to emerge. And so this model has actually been used previously by physicists to explain skin patterns in animals such as zebrafish and leopards. So how do those two uh, color, um, how do the colors differentiate? Well, they're using this reaction diffusion mechanism. And so this research focused on fairy circles in Australia. Uh, and so these are in a small area of the outback near a uh, mining town called Newman in Western Australia. And so basically, if you take a drone, like everyone does, and go over the field, you'll see all of these patches where you have rings of grass and then bare orange uh, sun-baked uh, mud in the middle, um, or just hard-packed soil, I should say. And so it looks very interesting and very beautiful, but it's also, you know, it's a little bit weird. How does it happen that these have grown in this way. And so there've been all sorts of ideas about how this happens over the years. Um, and so for instance, we know that some fairy circles um, are caused by fungus. So the fungus grows in that circular pattern, but this is something completely different. Um, and so they found that the grasses act as quote unquote, echo engineers. And so they create certain specific shapes in order to optimize the ability to survive in this, frankly, very harsh environment. Um, and so the research, which was carried out by a joint German-Australian-Israeli uh, research team, studied the Australian landscape and found evidence that the grasses form Turing-like patterned vegetation in order to manage a permanent water shortage in the arid outback environment. 
And so they found that the grasses have basically a cooperative growth dynamic. In order to redistribute the water resources, modulate the physical environment, and actually modify their own environment in order to maximize their ability to survive. The intriguing thing is that the grasses are actively engineering their own environment by forming symmetrically spaced gap patterns, says Stefan Getzen for the University of Göttingen in Germany. The vegetation benefits from the additional runoff water provided by the large fairy circles, and so keeps the arid ecosystem functional even in very harsh, dry conditions. And so in areas with more water, the grasses will grow in a normal pattern with uniform coverage. Without the self-organization of the grasses, this area would likely become desert, dominated by bare soil, Getson adds. And so this is very cool because it finally kind of confirms that yes, there is a pattern here and it actually is something that we've already known about and it has a regular order and it's been something that's I've heard about in the last year or so um, a couple of times where people were talking about how, you know, they've really sort of narrowed down the fact that these circles are caused because the grasses are trying to maximize the amount of water available to them. So it's a very, like I, you know, mentioned a couple times, it's the outback. So very arid, <laughs> not a lot of rainfall. And so when they're able to form these sort of hard packed circles, then if there is any waterfall, it then drains out into that circle of the um, grasses on the um, exterior of that circle. And so it allows them to really pick up that water in a way that they might not otherwise be able to if they were just trying to survive in clumps randomly associated. So again, it's one of those really neat places where you see where plants can actually organize themselves in a way that almost feels uh, human in some ways, because of course we define everything by human terms. And so uh, the plants seem to be actually getting together and organizing themselves. But of course, it's not quite that uh, anthropomorphic. It just happens to be that they are able to uh, figure out through chemical signaling and things like that. And probably by the fact that if uh, one of them grows in the wrong place, it dies. So um, that also is a pretty easy way to be able to maintain this kind of uh, rigid system. And so yeah, that is very cool. And again, Alan Turing was very cool. So it's glad it's nice to see another one of his theories proven. Okay, so let us finish up tonight with a couple more stories. Um, we might only get through one, uh, but we're going to try. So speaking of confirming theories, new research suggests that the original theory about the first fossil feathers to be feather, I should say, to be found, it turns out to be correct. <laughs> so the feather was found in the Sonhofen area of southern Germany in 1861 and was considered to be from an Archaeopteryx. 
However, because the feather was isolated, there has been some amount of controversy as to which animal the feather originated from. Last year, a team led by the University of Hong Kong studied the fossil and used laser-stimulated fluorescence to recover what they called the geochemical halo of the original calamus, or quill, of the fossil. And so uh, other researchers really hadn't ever seen that. And so they're still a little bit sketchy on that. Um, And so this team suggested that the morphology of the feather excluded it from being a primary, secondary, or tail feather of Archaeopteryx. But they did suggest it could be a covert or contour feather, but suggested that those are actually not well known in Archaeopteryx. They argued that if the feather was a primary covert, that it lacked the distinct S-shaped centerline found in modern primary coverts. They thus concluded that the feather may very well have been from another type of feathered dinosaur living in the Sonhofen archipelago. The latest study involving a specialized type of electron microscope suggests that the feather is actually indeed a primary covert, which overlays the primary feathers and helps propel birds through the air. The international team this time was led by the University of Southern Florida, and it took an analysis of nine attributes of the feather, comparison data from modern birds, and and analysis of 13 known skeletal fossils of Archaeopteryx, including three with well-preserved primary covert feathers with the same size and shape as the isolated feather. They also noted that the fossil was found in the same area as four skeletons of Archaeopteryx. Of course, this isn't a slam dunk. As we all know, it's hard to actually be lucky enough to find fossil remains, and so there could have been another feathered dinosaur living in the area, which left that feather but has not yet been discovered in skeletal form. But the research suggests that the feather is definitely from an Archaeopteryx. In fact, from the left wing, according to this research, and they also state that they've detected melanosomes, which are those little packets of uh, pigment that give uh, a lot of animal skins and um, feathers and such their colors. It suggests that the feather would have been matte black rather than black and white, as had been previously suggested. There's been debate for the past 159 years as to whether or not this feather belongs to the same species as the Archaeopteryx skeletons, as well as where on the body it came from and its original color, said lead author Ryan Carney. Through scientific detective work that combines new techniques with old fossils and literature, we were able to finally solve these century-old mysteries. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> now, of course, there might be more, uh, there might be another paper that uh, pushes back against that in future. And if there is, I will uh, bring it to you. But they seem pretty certain. And uh, it looks like they did some really good work with um, comparing it to different items. And, you know, it's a bit of Occam's razor. It was found near Archaeopteryx. It looks like an Archaeopteryx. It's probably an Archaeopteryx. Um <laughs> And so finally tonight, let's talk about training dogs. 
And so a new study suggests that uh, training dogs with electronic collars is no more effective than traditional training methods. And so that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, but it's good to have experimental data. So animal behavior researchers at the University of Lincoln uh, conducted a study that looked at the efficacy of training with electronic or e-collars, which uh, unfortunately are those which, as you can probably tell, shock the animal slightly uh, when they do something bad. And so they analyzed video footage of training sessions where come and sit commands were given. And they found that training with an e-collar was no more effective than training without. And so they found that positive reinforcement was found to be the most effective method. So dogs learn to obey commands better and more effectively when trainers gave them consistent signals and rewarded correct responses. And so I think that that is very good for uh, people to know because not hurting your dog is always better than hurting your dog, as far as I'm concerned. Professor Jonathan Cooper from the Animal Behavior Cognition and Welfare Research Group said, the reward-based control group had a higher proportion of obeys after first command to both come and sit commands and required fewer multiple commands to initiate a recall or complete a sit response. This suggests that the reward-based training was the most effective approach not only for recall, which was the target behavior in training, but also for other commands. Given the additional potential risk to the animals while being associated with the use of e-collars, we conclude that dog training with these devices causes unnecessary suffering and increases risk to a dog's well-being without good evidence of improving outcomes. And so this work was published in Frontiers of Veterinary Science. And so, yeah, definitely support the idea that we should not be putting shock collars on dogs and, you know, tell them they're good boys and girls more. Okay, that's all we have for tonight. Uh, Next week, we will be back uh, and I will have more for you. So good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.